The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Mother's Day means for you or what routines that may involve, whether that was uh, presents for mom this morning, whether that's flowers, uh, a lunch out later, perhaps phone calls to grandmoms. I'm not sure what uh, mistakes maybe Mother's Day brings to mind, especially for you husbands. I uh, was thinking of my first, maybe it was second, uh, Mother's Day after my oldest daughter was born decided I should get my wife flowers for Mother's Day. It's a good idea. I was driving past an Amish farm uh, and noticed floral baskets for sale at the Amish farm for Mother's Day. And doing a quick calculation, I figured I could get three times as many flowers from the Amish farm as I could at, at Giant in the local forest. So bought them, brought home, gave them to my wife, and immediately knew something was wrong. As the look on her face was something between laughing and mocking. And uh, not of appreciation, and I said, what? Flowers, Mother's Day. She looked at me, and she looked at the bachelor, and she said, that looks just like a funeral arrangement. (laughs) Oh, well, no more Amish flowers for Mother's Day. Or maybe, maybe you were one of those children who bought the Mother's Day card that I saw this week. It was a card, it was a solid gray card. It said, Happy Mother's Day. It said, I chose this card because it goes so well with your hair. And... (laughs) not the card you wanted to buy. But whatever your routines are for Mother's Day, we come, undeniably, I think, to Mother's Day, also in the midst of a lot of confusion. We come to Mother's Day in the midst of cultural confusion. We're confused because we don't know exactly what motherhood means as a culture. For some, motherhood, and perhaps fatherhood too, is a threat to my dreams and to my goals in life. For others, it's an unintended consequence of my pursuit of pleasure. For others, motherhood perhaps means a lonely calling that goes unappreciated in the midst of a broken family. For others, motherhood means anything we want to anyone we want. And so we're confused by what it can mean if it's for anyone. I think this was indicated by the Mother's Day luncheon invitation I saw this week, which said, uh, all women or anyone who identifies as a woman invited for Mother's Day. We're, we're confused culturally about motherhood, but, but we're also confused because, because brokenness, because sin has entered into all relationships, all family relationships. And so maybe there are many, I know, in our congregation who have either immediate or extended family relationships where we come filled with with frustration or alienation in our family. And so we wonder, how can I celebrate Mother's Day in the face of this alienation in my family? Or maybe we come to Mother's Day struggling, struggling with the pain of unfulfilled longing. We want to be a mother, and for whatever reason, we are not. Or maybe in some lesser way and yet constant way, we just come with the daily friction of sinners living with sinners, 
And so Mother's Day is clouded by conflict. I don't know what other confusion we might come, but Mother's Day can also bring much confusion and brokenness and consciousness of our sin. But in the midst of this, God's Word speaks clearly. And Genesis 1 and 2 come to us and remind us through the story of God's creation of the significance and the importance of God's calling as mothers. And so if you would turn with me, I want to read two passages. First, briefly, from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, and then we'll turn to Genesis chapter 2. God's Word says, chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now flip over to Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called them, uh, every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And then the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God, this is your word. You have written it to us. Challenge us. Instruct us. Comfort us. Help us to know you more and what you call us to more. We pray that your word would not go forth void, but that you would speak to us through it by your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here we read the account of creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And Genesis 1 and 2 both describe God's creation of Adam and Eve, but they describe it in very different ways. In chapter 1 of Genesis, we have the big picture of God's creation, dealing with the creation of mankind on a cosmic level. We have the creation of heavens and earth, and then beasts of the field, and now mankind. And Genesis 1 instructs man on how God created them and the purpose for which God created them in this cosmic picture of all creation. Genesis 2 then slows down, and Genesis 2 gives us with a narrow focus specifically on God's creation of man and woman, sort of a a play-by-play of of how God created man and woman and why God created man and woman in a much more personal account. In each account, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 gives us 
something different, but something important about God's creation of male and female and His purpose in doing so. So I want to look at each passage and what they have to say to us. Let's start in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. We come to these verses with God having described the creation of heavens and earth, of, of the sea and the dry land, of the sun, moon, stars, of animals of every shape, size, color, and, and realm. And having created all of that here in verse 26, God comes to the pinnacle of His creation and says, having created this whole world, this whole realm, now let us create man. Man in our image after our likeness. Right away in verse 27, we find out that creating man, God is not creating a singular being. He's creating two. He's creating not just a person, but male and female. And if we look at verse 27 and 28, these verses tell us something very important about the relationship between male and female that's foundational to understand God's purpose in the creation of humanity. Look at a couple of things. First, note that in verse 27, the relationship between male and female is part of how mankind bears God's image. It's interesting to note that when God describes mankind in creating them, He gives us two descriptions that describe who this man is that He's creating. Who is mankind? Two descriptions at the core of who we are as people. First, we are made in God's image. And this passage tells us three times God made man in His image. In the image of God, He created them. And secondly, we are male and female. And so male and female and being in God's image are two of the key things God has chosen to say are at the core of our identity as He creates us. But as we read verse 27 and look at it carefully, I think you'll note that male and female and being created in God's image are not two separate descriptions of who we are, but are actually related to each other. In other words, being male and female is part of how we image God as mankind. Part of the way humans are going to reflect God and image Him is by being male and female and how that relationship will play out. And this makes sense if we remember who God is. Remember, God is a triune God. God is not alone. He is three persons in one being. He is equal in power and glory, yet distinct in His persons and His roles. There's unity and diversity. There's relationship with difference. That's who God is. And if humanity is going to bear God's image, then there also needs to be equality and distinction. There needs to be un unity and diversity, relationship between different persons. As one author put it, describing the creation of man and woman, he said, when Adam was found alone in the garden, the problem is not that Adam is lonely, but that he is alone. And being alone without diversity, without relationship, without someone different who can complement is not a good way to bear God's image. Man is male and female, as different yet equal. And that is part of how we bear the image of our Creator. That's the first thing this passage tells us. But then secondly, we move on in verse 28, and we hear something more of the significance of male and female. God gives mankind His first task, to be fruitful and multiply in order to fill the earth and rule over it as God's commissioned rulers on earth. 
And this gives us another reason that God's creation of male and female is so important. Mankind must be male and female in order to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and represent God as God has tasked him to be. And so, both in order to reflect God and in order to carry out the task God has given us, mankind must be male and female. Male and female is not just a random biological arrangement. It is part and parcel of the core of who God has created us to be and the purpose He's given us as His people. Perhaps we could put it this way. We could say that according to Genesis 1, family is central to the identity and to the calling God has given mankind as bearers of His image. Just as God, as Father, Son, and Spirit, dwell together in intimate relationship, in perfect love, united with one another, in joy and fellowship, and and out of that love and joy and fellowship overflows God's creative love. We could picture creation as just an overflow of God's united love as a triune God. So, God creates male and female to live together in an intimate relationship such that the love and fellowship of equal yet different beings overflows in the creation of new life enabled to bear God's image and carry out His task. Now, I should pause briefly, I think, although this is another sermon topic, because some of you might be thinking, well, if male and female and and family and marriage are so intimately connected to bearing God's image and carrying out His task, what does that mean for for those of of us who are single or who who don't have hope of being married for whatever reason? Does Does that mean that we can't carry out God's task or be created in God's image? And of course, Jesus and Paul both answered this question with a resounding no. And without going into much depth, we can summarize their answer by saying, First, on one level, male and female, interacting in the body of Christ, also image God's character as different, yet male and female united in the body of Christ. But even more importantly, we can remind ourselves what what Paul tells us, that marriage between man and woman is a picture of the greater relationship between us and Christ. And so for any person, their union with Christ is the fullest expression of, of unity and diversity, and of being restored and made whole in the image of God. So we certainly need to make that comment. But back to our text, with this noted, we can also affirm that both culturally and personally, we need Genesis 1's reminder that male and female, father and mother, as families, we are called to reflect our Creator and carry out the purpose that God has given us as human beings. This is the significance that Genesis 1 gives to family, to male and female, and what we are called to. Well, next look over at Genesis 2. If Genesis 1 emphasizes God's call to male and female together as a unit to reflect His image and fulfill His task, Genesis 2, in its slowed-down, play-by-play story, begins to draw out the significance and the uniqueness of each one of these people, male and female and their contribution towards God's task and their role in relationship. Now, I love the way this narrative starts. God puts Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. And God gives Adam the first command that humans must obey, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And I can imagine Adam showing up day one in the Garden of Eden, all primed and ready to carry out God's task, to do everything that needs to be done, to keep the commands. He's ready to do it by himself. You note that it is not Adam who notes that he needs help. It's God who looks down and says, he needs help. I don't know what the first uh, guy before the fall was like. I know what guys are like now after the fall. And if there was any similarity, then it wouldn't be surprising at this point in the narrative, on day one, for Adam to show up and say, I don't need help. I've got this. What? Help? Problem? Eh? Oh, uh, woman? Hi, yeah, I'm just naming animals over here. I got this taken care of. And so God plays out this narrative in a way that emphasizes to Adam his need of a helper, of a complement. You'll also note in the text, as God begins to bring the animals to Adam, that God is not trying to find a helper for Adam. At this point in the story, God has already created all of the animals, and at that point of already creating all of the animals in the past, he says, I will create a helper for Adam. God already knows he's going to have to create another helper. The animals aren't the answer for God, but God takes Adam through this parade of animals to emphasize his need. And so you can imagine Adam as he goes through the task of naming the animals. And, and I imagine the animals coming before him, and I wonder if those animals came before him in their pairs of male and female pairs. And as he named these animals, it became more and more evident to Adam that a suitable helper was not to be found. But it's that very sense of need. It's that sense of desperate need that there is no helper suitable for Adam that brings us to these beautiful verses in 22 and 23 where God responds to Adam's need by making Eve out of Adam's flesh, out of his rib. And then, and then God brings Eve. You can imagine sort of God as, as the father of the bride bringing this perfect this sinless bride, Eve, to Adam. And his response is to burst into song. He says, at last! And you'll see in your Bibles that this is set off as a poem. This is, this is a, a love song, if you will. And when we think of love songs, I think our minds are a bit muddled as to what this would really mean because for the last 50 years, our, our records and our cassettes and our CDs and our iTunes accounts have been filled with so many love songs, whether it's Elvis and the Supremes or, or Taylor Swift and Sam Smith, that we kind of forget perhaps what true love is. But this here in Genesis 2 is the original love song. This is an outburst of praise, an outburst of love of sinless love and joy as Adam sees Eve for the first time. But I want us to see how this story highlights the importance and the significance of Eve to creation and to God's commands. I think it's important to recognize, as one author put it, that this story of the first human couple is not told to us on the off chance that we're really interested in ancient history. This story is told to us because it is true for all humankind. This story in Genesis 2 sets the pattern and the purpose for male and female in marriage and the family. So I want to note a couple of key things that come from this story. Note first Eve's purpose as the suitable helper for Adam. Now this phrase of a fit helper or suitable helper has been offensive to some recently. 
to think um, and to call Eve or, or the woman as a helper seems demeaning to some. And I wonder if this is because we have the wrong image in mind. You know, I have a, I have a son, four-year-old, Drew, and you know, at times I'll say to him, hey, hey Drew, I have, to, I have to fix something. Would you like to help me? And, and I'll say, well, will you help me fix the sink? And so Drew comes along and helps me fix the sink. And, and when I ask him to help me in that sense, what I mean is, well, I'm going to fix the sink, and, and, and you, know, you can hand me a tool, or, or you, know, you could turn the first couple screws of the screw, and then I'll take it from there. And as if, as if the helper is someone who does a couple of meaningful things for their sake, but the man is the one who does the real work. But that's not what this text is saying. That's not the meaning of this verse. See, this verse calls Eve a helper. And the word in Hebrew that is used for helper here is used 18 more times in the Old Testament. And 16 of the 18 times this word helper is talking about God and God's help for mankind. See, Eve is brought in as this strong helper who enables man to do what he cannot do alone. God is creating a helper who comes along and enables where another person is incapable, who provides strength, comfort, support where one is alone, weak, and unable to move forward. When God says that He is creating a suitable helper for Adam then, He is saying that He is creating Adam's like opposite. Someone different than him, but perfectly suited for him, who will enable him to do what he cannot do alone who will strengthen him to accomplish God's purpose for mankind, which he cannot do without her. This is the strong helper that God provides to Adam and Eve and the strong helper that God has given us in in woman. So this is an empowering term, not an offensive term. A godlike term. A suitable helper is brought to Adam. I also want to note how this passage talks about the relationship between male and female and husband and wife. Note the beautiful picture of marriage and the marriage relationship in verse 23. When Adam bursts forth in his song, he bursts forth by declaring that Eve is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And certainly this is a comment that's just simply factual. Eve literally is bone of his bone. Flesh of his flesh, for she was created out of his rib. But this phrase, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, becomes a phrase in Hebrew that is meant to express the closest possible relationship. A loyalty that cannot be broken. And so you might remember when Jacob comes to his uncle Laban, that Laban says, you are flesh of my flesh expressing that Jacob will not be turned away. There is a loyalty and a bond there. And so Adam is expressing in this phrase the closest possible bond in this marriage relationship, a loyalty and a closeness in the marriage relationship. But the Hebrew also tells us something important that the English can't convey about the significance of God's bringing Eve to Adam here. See, up until this point in the text, we've seen the word man used a number of times. But every time it's been the word for man as in mankind. Mankind. Here, when Adam sings his song, he names Eve for the first time woman. But he also for the first time names himself man. See, in this poem that that Adam composes, he gives woman her name 
her identity in light of himself. But he also, for the first time, understands his own identity in his name in light of Eve. In other words, there's a mutual dependence here where Eve's name comes from Adam, but Adam's name also comes when he meets Eve. And he was unable to know his own name and identity apart from his like opposite, his fit helper. And so this verse is giving us this beautiful picture of mutual dependency built into the story that gives us such a beautiful picture of marriage, close relationship, mutual dependency upon one another. What a beautiful picture. A beautiful picture of marriage, a beautiful and positive picture that is just the beginning of the significant role that God gives to women throughout Scripture and that He gave us right in His design of the marriage relationship. If you take this picture as a whole, Genesis 2 gives us a beautiful picture that men and women stand equal before God and equally in need of each other and mutually dependent upon one another in the marriage relationship. But of course, this passage also reminds us that men and women have unique gifts and callings. There is difference in their equality. And so if you follow the course of the narrative, you'll see how this difference is described in the creation of man and woman. Adam is first commissioned or given a task. He's called to work the garden. Man gives this calling and task of work, but he also gives man the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man is held responsible for keeping this command. He's he's held responsible as the representative head of his family. And so Paul, when he looks back to the fall, says that it is Adam's sin as the responsible party that led to the fall of mankind. So the story lays this, this task and commissioning and responsibility on, on the man while then giving woman her important and necessary role as the strong helper, the necessary partner, supporting, strengthening, promoting, enabling the couple to carry out the commands that God has given them to do. And so there's this beautiful picture of mutual dependency, equality in standing before God, and yet also order and distinction. And the difference in calling actually raises the significance of both callings. Man and woman is not interchangeable. They each have unique callings, and that raises the significance of each of them. Perhaps it's difficult still to think of a relationship that is both equal and yet has distinction. But again, we're called to remember that man and woman is imaging our God. And just as in the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit are fully equal in their power and glory and their being and their... They are also in their persons fully dependent upon each other. And so there is order and specific roles in the Father, Son, and Spirit that each of them play. Once again, in equality and mutual dependence, but also order and distinction. Man and woman, male and female, image God and reflect Him. These are the key truths that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 give us. And as we let these foundational truths from Genesis flood our minds and hearts, I want to mention a few applications to this as we close. First, surrounded by a culture that that preaches a very different message, but also surrounded by our own sin, this picture seems broken. It's easy to doubt this picture because we don't see it around us. It's easy to think that this picture is unattainable or impossible. It's easy to wonder if if Scripture really knew what it's talking about. 
because we see this picture broken time and time again. We struggle with so many broken pictures of what family and relationships are supposed to look like because of our sin and the sin of those around us. And, and some of you here grieving, grieving this, this brokenness, this sin, the pain of living in a world wrecked by the fall. So how do we, how do we come to Genesis 1 and 2 in the midst of this pain and this brokenness? Well, on the first hand, Genesis 1 and 2 call us back to the God's pattern. It gives us the picture of what we're aiming for. It calls us from our sin back to who God has created us to be. And that is good. This picture here in Genesis 1 and 2 is a glorious picture. It is strong. It is life and joy giving when we follow this pattern because it is who God created us to be. But second, as you sit here wondering about the brokenness of sin, remember that this family was broken by sin. This relationship, Adam and Eve and their children, their family was wrecked by sin in the fall. And you only have to read one more chapter, two more chapters, to see all of its devastating consequences. But remember that this story doesn't end with brokenness either because into Adam and Eve's sin comes God's promise. Promise that in your seed will come one who will redeem you out of pain and brokenness. Through your family will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. And so we're not stuck in failure. God has given a promise to Adam and Eve that is still true of us. A promise that in its already fulfilled hope, we find hope even in the midst of brokenness. So this pattern that Genesis 1 and 2 gives us, this story calls us to what we are to be, as families, as men, as women, as, as mothers and fathers. But it also gives us hope because it calls us and points us to the Savior who redeems the brokenness of every family and gives us hope in Him. So be reminded and come to this picture in the hope of the Savior who's promised. Second, I want to make a very brief comment to, to husbands and children. When Adam meets Eve, he bursts into song. Husbands, children, how many times have you broken into song over your wives and mothers? How many times have you given thanks to them and for them? You know, this is an exclamation of praise to God and thanksgiving for Eve. And there's so much on our minds and our hearts as we go through our days, as we're, as we're at work, as we are caught up in the busyness of our lives, perhaps, that we are distracted and we fail to thank our mothers and our wives, to thank the Lord for them. You know, many of you know that Proverbs 31 is held up as a picture of, of an excellent wife. And, some of, and sometimes you, I know that, that some of us are caught up in thinking, well, yes, when my wife does a good job, when my mom does a good job, if I had the mother and wife who is as perfect as that woman, then I would rise up and praise her. But that misses the point of the text. Proverbs 31 ends by saying, Children, rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also praises her. We do that not just when we think they're doing a good job. We praise them and we thank them and we thank God for them because of who God has called them to be. God has given them to us as families as the strong helper 
who labors on behalf, fulfilling and enabling us to fulfill God's call for our lives. So in who our mothers and our wives are as God's provision for us and as, God, as the one God has given to enable us all to fulfill the task God has given, rise up and call her blessed. Give thanks to God and give thanks to them. Finally, mothers, Genesis refocuses your call as well. Genesis 2 is a reminder of your glorious role in carrying out God's purpose for humanity. You are the strong helper, and the work you are called to do is fulfilling God's grand task to image Him and to multiply and fill the earth with more image bearers of Him. You know, how do we do this? How can, we, how can we fulfill this task that God has given us, especially given our own sin? You know, Proverbs 31, after all of this grand description, ends with this comment, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And the brokenness of Eve's relationship began with a failure to fear the Lord. And certainly, all of us now fail to fear the Lord. And brokenness comes from all of our sin. But, but wives and mothers, this is a call to you to be rooted in the fear of the Lord. Spread out your roots in the Lord is literally what we mean. When your roots grow into the Lord, your rootedness, your grounding, your security, your strength comes from the Lord so that winds will, of adversity will not knock you over. And when your roots are spread out in the Lord, your nourishment and your strength comes from the Lord so that He is the one who feeds you and strengthens you for the task. What enables you to be the strong helper you were created to be? What enables you to carry out God's command to fill the earth with young men and women who bear His image? It's being rooted in the fear of the Lord and how this is played out daily. No, it would be nice, wouldn't it, if our calling and our task to raise up image bearers for God could be done by just a few key moments. If we could just, you know, every once in a while lay this great gold nugget that would lead our children to know God, that would be really nice. But that's not how it works. We're called instead to lay this fine gold dust all over our children's lives, as Rachel Jenkovich put it. She said the task of Christian parenting and mothering is to lay this gold dust of the love of God and the fear of the Lord and the security of His love for us and the calling of who God has made to be in every moment. And that means especially when we don't feel like it. But if our roots are in the Lord, we will have the strength to do this in Him. And because the Lord has provided a Savior, we will also have the forgiveness and hope when we fail to do this as we long to. I want to close by reading a brief passage. This is a passage from a new book by David Brooks. Some of you know David Brooks, author and columnist. Not sure that he's a believer. But he wrote this book examining the lives of people who demonstrate character and virtue. And I think this passage, one, perfectly describes so many wives and mothers I know. And so I read this as a thanks to them. But I also think this is an excellent description of what it looks like to be a mother 
and a wife rooted in the Lord. And so I read this as a calling to you as well. He writes, Occasionally, even today, you come across certain people who seem to possess an impressive inner cohesion. They are not leading fragmented, scattershot lives. They are calm, settled, and rooted. They don't crumble in adversity. Their minds are consistent and their hearts are dependable. They possess the self-effacing virtues of people who are inclined to be useful but don't need to prove anything to the world. They perform acts of sacrificial service with the same modest everyday spirit they display when they're getting the groceries. They are not thinking about what impressive work they are doing because they are not thinking about themselves at all. They just seem delighted by the flawed people around them. That sentence describes motherhood in so many ways. And so, as we close, I want to remind us that God has given you, wives and mothers, a glorious calling, an essential calling. And as you face the daily frustrations and hardships of your task, be reminded of the importance and significance of what you are doing, bearing God's image and raising up more image bearers who represent Him to the watching world. May you be strengthened in this as you spread out your roots and our created God. Father, I thank you that you are a creator, that you have given us in this passage a story of your creation, not just for interest's sake, but to define our calling and our purpose. And not just to define our calling and our purpose, but to remind us of who you are as the one who enables us to fulfill that purpose. Give us the grace, root us in yourself, that you might be glorified as we do what you've called us to do. We pray this in Christ's name.